Chapter Seventeen of the Night Club by Herbert Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen Sally at the Wheel. It is one of Windover's pet theories that if a man will be but natural, he can go anywhere and do anything. He claims that the public school benefits a man not by what it bestows, but rather by what it destroys. It clips the ragged edges of a man's ego, he would remark, and teaches him that as an entity he has no place in the universe. Windover will talk for hours on this subject. Simplicity of nature and the faculty of adapting himself to any environment are, according to him, the ideal results the public schools achieve. In all probability, Bindle never had any ragged edges to his ego. Simple-minded and large-hearted, as much at home with the denizens of Mayfair as the inhabitants of Houndsditch, he seems never at a loss. He is always just Bindle, and that is why everyone seems instinctively to like him. He always does the right thing, because he knows no wrong thing to do. Unlike Angel Herald, he is not burdened by two distinct sets of manners. Bindle would discuss regicides with Hamlet, or noses with a Cyrano de Bergerac, with entire unconsciousness of giving offence. He is one thing to all men, as Dare once told him, whereat Bindle remarked, "'But don't forget the ladies, sir.' One Sunday evening, just as the club was breaking up, Sally remarked to Bindle, "'Next Saturday, Mr. Bindle, you must get a whole day's holiday and come with me for a picnic.' "'Me, miss?' inquired the astonished Bindle. "'Me and you at a picnic. Well, I'm blessed.' Bindle was taken by surprise. He looked from Sally to Windover and then to me, as if seeking an explanation of why Sally should invite him. "'Just we four, Sally went on, in that inimitable way of hers, which would make purgatory a paradise. "'We'll take the car and luncheon and tea-biscuits, it will be splendid. You will come, Mr. Bindle, won't you?" Sally looked at him with sparkling eyes. "'Come, miss?' cried Bindle. "'Come? I'll come if it costs me Mrs. B.'s love. You did say a motor-car, miss,' he inquired anxiously, and Sally's assurance that she had seemed all that was necessary to complete his happiness. That evening Bindle and I left Dick Little's flat together. For some time we walked along in silence, each engaged with his own thoughts. Suddenly Bindle broke the silence. "'What did I ought to wear, sir?' he inquired. There was a look of anxiety on his face, and unusual corrugations on his forehead. "'Well, J.B.,' I remarked, "'you'd look nice in muslin with a picture hat.' His reproachful look, however, showed me that I had made a mistake. "'I can't wear them Oxford togs with her,' he remarked. It should be explained that when Bindle went to Oxford, impersonating the millionaire uncle of an unpopular undergraduate, he had been fitted out with a wardrobe to suit the part. Included in it were a loud black and white check suit, a white waistcoat, a Homburg hat with a puggaree, a red necktie, and a cane heavily adorned with yellow metal. Involuntarily I shuddered at the thought of what Sally would suffer if Bindle turned up in such a costume. "'No,' I said, with great seriousness, "'they're not quite suited to motoring. 
"'You must get a new rig out, J.B.' I added. Still Bindle's face did not clear, and I guessed that it was a question of finance. I proffered assistance, but that did not help matters. It seemed to make things worse. Bindle is very independent. For some time we walked along in silence. Suddenly I had an inspiration. "'I'll sell one of your yarns to an unsuspecting editor,' I said, "'and we'll share the plunder. I'll advance you something on account of your share.' In a second the clouds disappeared. "'You're sure it'll earn enough?' he inquired suspiciously. I proceeded to swear that it would in a manner that would have made Lars Porcina envious. I was interrupted by a taxi pulling up with a grind just behind, and Windover jumped out, paid the man, and joined us. "'I quite forget,' Windover began. "'Sally told me to arrange to meet at Putney Town Station. She'll run the car through and pick us up there.' Bindle explained to Windover that the question of his wardrobe had been under discussion, and the upshot was that Windover, who was a supreme artist in the manner of clothes, undertook to see Bindle properly turned out. On Saturday morning I was at the appointed place a few minutes before nine. I looked round for Bindle, and then forgot him in watching the struggles of a horse to drag a heavily laden coal-cart up the rise where the high street passes over the railway. The level reached, the carter drew up to the curb where the horse stood quivering and panting, bathed in sweat. Suddenly I became aware that one of the men I had observed, pushing behind the cart, was Bindle, but such a Bindle. No wonder I had at first failed to recognize a blue-suited, brown-booted, dark-tied Bindle. Everything about him was the perfection of fit and cut, from his simple crook cane to his wash-leather gloves. Most wonderful of all, Bindle carried his clothes as if accustomed to them every day of the week. With perfect gravity he drew off his right glove before shaking hands. "'Do you like it, sir?' I drew a sigh of relief. The vernacular was unchanged. It was still the same Bindle. "'J.B.' I said gravely. "'I've never seen a better-dressed man in my life. It's an entire metamorphosis.' "'There you're sort of wrong, sir. It's his lordship. Do you think she'll like it, sir?' he inquired anxiously. By she I knew he meant Sally. "'Sure of it,' I replied with confidence. Bindle seemed reassured. Suddenly his eye caught the black line across the palm of his right glove. "'Look what I done!' He held out the glove for my inspection, as a child might a torn pinafore. "'What'll she think?' There was anxiety in his voice. "'She'll be rather pleased when I tell her how it happened,' I replied, at which his face cleared. "'I wanted a red tie to sort of give it a bite, but he wouldn't have it, so here I am." And Bindle drew on his right glove once more. "'Tell me all about it,' I urged. "'Those clothes were made in the West End, I swear.' "'Got it first time, sir,' he remarked, as he drew from his breast-pocket a suspicious-looking cigar, with an enormous red and gold band round its middle. "'Let me cut it for you,' I broke in hastily, seizing the weed without waiting for his acquiescence. That band would have killed Sally, so I ripped it off. As I did so, Bindle made a movement as if to stop me, 
But he said nothing. As I raised my eyes from the operation, I saw his regretful gaze fixed upon the band lying on the pavement, a shameless splash of crimson and of gold. Bindle lighted his cigar, and I manoeuvred to get windward of him. "'You was talking about these ere duds, sir,' remarked Bindle, puffing contentedly, at what made me pray for Windover's swift arrival. I do not carry cigars. "'You was right, sir.' "'In what?' I queried. "'They came from Savile Row, from his lordship's own snips. You should have seen his face when his lordship said he was out for reach-me-downs for yours truly.' It was easy to visualize the scene. Windover easy, courteous, matter-of-fact. His tailor staggered, yet striving to disguise his astonishment under a veneer of urbanity, and yes, my lords. Windover is the most perfectly bred creature I have ever met. If he were to order riding-breeches for a camel, he would do so in such a way that no one would think of laughing, or even regarding it as strange. "'Took me round hisself everywhere,' continued Bindle. "'We got this at Piccadilly, these boots and gloves in Bond Street, also the tie.' Bindle looked round cautiously, and then bending a little closer he confided, I'm silk underneath." He leaned back upon his stick to see the effect. I smiled. "'With funny things round me legs to keep me socks up.' And he grinned joyously at the thought of his own splendour. "'What did Mrs. Bindle say?' I inquired. "'Ush, sir, ush! She said about everything she could think of, and a good many things she didn't ought to know. She talked about mammon, keepin' holy the Sabbath day, about Abraham's bosom. Just fancy a woman married to a man like me a-talkin' about another cove's bosom. Why can't she say chest and be respectable? And what did you say? I queried. Oh, replied Bindle, I just asked her what old Abraham did when he got a chill, and if he called it a cold on his bosom. I laughed, but Bindle continued seriously. She arst me where I'd be if the end of the world was to come sudden-like. Scenting a good rejoinder, I inquired what he had said. I told her to look in the saloon bar first, and if I wasn't there, to try the bottle and jug department. I come away then. Mrs. B's a rummy sort of send-off for an holiday, he soliloquized. After a pause he added, I'd like to have just a peep at Evan to see if God is really like what Mrs. B. says. Seems to me he must be like one of them quick-change coves I seen at the Granville. Old Warren Whiskers, the Kaiser, says he helps the Germans to kill kids and act women about. Mrs. B. says he's going to give me pickles when I die, and old Erty seems to think he's collecting only greengrocers. There was one parson chap what told me that he was kind and just, with eyes what smiled. I don't see how he can be the old bloomin' lot, cause— Bindle suddenly broke off, straightened himself, lifted his hat, and proceeded to pull off his glove. I turned and saw Sally bringing her Mercedes along at a thumping pace. She bore in towards us and brought the car up in a workmanlike manner. Windover, who was seated behind her, jumped out. "'Cheero!' said Bindle. "'Cheero!' replied Windover. 
Probably it was the first time in his life that he had ever used the expression. He is inclined to be a purist. "'You been stealin' a march on us, sir,' said Bindle. "'I was literally picked out of my taxi,' explained Windover. "'Hardly time to pay the man. I should say overpay the man. I had forgotten the war.' I saw the look in Sally's eyes that she was pleased with Bindle's appearance. "'Jump in,' she said. Sally is always brisk and businesslike when running Mercy, as she calls her car. "'You must sit by me, Mr. Bindle.' Bindle's cup of happiness was now full to overflowing. When he took his seat beside Sally, I caught his eye. In it was a look of triumph. It said clearly, just fancy her wantin' me when she could have a lord." As we swung up Putney Hill, Windover told me of his experiences in clothing Bindle. At my particular request he also gave me an approximate idea of the sum involved. It was worthy both of Windover and the West End. "'But, my dear Windover,' I expostulated, "'was silk underwear absolutely necessary for this picnic?' Windover turned upon me a pair of reproachful eyes. "'Phillips is sensitive,' he remarked, and if he knew that any of his creations were put over anything but silk, he would close my account. With that I had to rest content. Personally, I had seen no need to take Bindle to Phillips at all. But Windover is an artist. He composes his wearing apparel as a painter composes a picture, or a poet a sonnet. If Providence be discriminating, it will punish Windover in the next world for his misdemeanours in this by making him wear odd socks, or a hard hat with a morning coat. I told him so. As we talked, I noticed Windover snuffing the air like a hound. He looked at me, then moved the rug to see if there were anything at the bottom of the car. Finally he smelt the rug. Still he seemed dissatisfied continuing to turn his head from side to side, sniffing, as if endeavouring to trace some evil smell. Finally his eyes fixed themselves on Bindle, sitting complacently smoking his cigar. "'Good God!' he muttered, as he screwed his eyeglass into his eye. "'I thought it was a dead dog. He must have run out of coronels,' I heard him mutter. "'You can't raise a man from Fulham to Curzon Street in a few hours, Windover,' I remarked reproachfully. "'You taught Bindle to remove his glove before shaking hands, and you also gave him very creditable instructions in how to lift his hat so as not to look like a third-rate actor in a restoration melodrama. But you omitted to instruct him in the choice of cigars.' "'Windover has as delicate a taste in tobacco as in women.' In other words, he is extremely fastidious. I watched him as he turned the problem over in his mind. I could follow his train of thought. It was obviously impossible to sit inhaling the fumes of Bindle's cigar. It was unthinkable again to tell the dear chap it was nothing short of a pollution. In all probability it was a three-penny cigar, the extra penny being in honour of the occasion. Therefore, some other way out of the difficulty must be devised. I had every confidence in Windover and his sense of delicacy. His eyeglass dropped from his eye, a sure sign that the strain of deep thinking was past. 
Taking his cigar case from his pocket, he tapped Bindle on the shoulder and whispered to him. Bindle gave a quick look at Sally, surreptitiously threw away his cigar, and accepted one proffered by Windover, the end of which he promptly bit off. Windover sank back into his seat with a sigh, and I saw Bindle turn to Sally, who changed speed and put on the brakes. He then calmly proceeded to light his new cigar, quite unconscious that, in asking her to stop a car going at nearly forty miles an hour, he had transgressed against one of the thou shalt nots of motoring. "'How did you do it?' I asked Windover. I told him that Sally would be mortally offended if she knew he was smoking one of his own cigars, it was her picnic, and she had given me some cigars with which to keep him supplied. Tactful Windover. Lunch we had in a field well off the main road. Bindle's face was a study as we unpacked the luncheon hamper. Sally is very thorough, and her picnic appointments are the most perfect I have ever encountered from the folding legless table to the dainty salt-spoons. For once Bindle was silent, but his eyes were busy. When the champagne appeared with the ice and the ice-cream cooler, his emotions overcame him. I heard him mutter to himself, "'Well, I'm blowed.' During the meal the rest of us talked, but Bindle said little. "'You're very quiet, Mr. Bindle,' said Sally at last, smiling. "'I'm too happy to talk, miss,' said Bindle, with unusual gravity, and there was a look in his eyes that was more eloquent than his words. "'You see, miss, you can do this any day you likes, and you get sort of used to it, but I don't suppose I shall ever do it again, and I want to make sure that I'm enjoying every bit of it. I can talk any time.' Sally turned her head quickly, and I could see that her eyes were moist. Bindle's remark was not without its pathos. After lunch Sally took Bindle off for a walk, whilst Windover and I stayed by the car. During the half-hour they were absent, only one remark was made as we sat smoking, and that was by Windover. "'I have come to regard Bindle as a social antiseptic,' he said. I knew it had taken Windover since lunch to arrive at this definition. As the hours sped, Bindle remained silent, and Sally was content to devote herself to the car. Snug in one of Carruthers' motor-coats, Bindle devoured with his eyes everything he saw. But what a changed Bindle! There was no cracking jokes or passing remarks with passers-by. He did not even look at a public-house. Instinctively he had adapted himself to his environment. "'I think he's the most perfect gentle person I've met.' Sally had once said. After dinner Bindle became more conversational. It was an evening when the silence could be heard. In the distance was an occasional moan of a train, or the bark of a dog, but nothing else. The sky was clear, the sun was spilling itself in deep gold upon the landscape. The dinner had been good, and within us all was a feeling of content. "'How is Mrs. Bindle?' inquired Sally of Bindle. "'Oh, just ordinary like, miss. Her soul still gives her a lot of trouble.' "'Don't you think,' said Sally, with that smile of hers, which seemed to disarm her remark of the criticism it contained, "'that you sometimes tease her too much?' Bindle's grin faded. 
"'I've been thinking that too, miss,' he said seriously. "'But somehow the things seem to come out, and I don't mean her no harm, really, miss.' "'I'm sure you don't,' Sally hastened to say. "'Well, take last night, for instance,' said Bindle. "'We was talking about the German corpse factory. Oh, I'd been reading to her from the paper how they turned the poor devils what had died, doing their bit to kill our chaps, into margarine, candles, oils for motor-cars, and that sort of stuff. We was having supper, and I happens to say quite innocent-like, if you and me was uns, Lizzie and poor old Artie had died for his country, a thing what Artie never will do if he can help it, we might be a-spreadin' of him on this ere bread, and that there candle might be a bit of Artie and us not knowin' it. Well, there ain't much arm in that, miss, is there? Yet she said I'd spoiled her supper, and she pushed the salmon away from her, and said I wasn't fit to live with, and that I'd got a dirty mind. J.B., said Windover, my sympathies are entirely with Mrs. Bindle. Your remark was extremely inappropriate. Bindle looked round him from one to another. Well, sir, he expostulated, wasn't I right? It was not a question of right, J.B., said Windover, with mock severity. It was a question of tact. Tack? said Bindle. Hadn't I taken home a tin of salmon, and when the breeze started, didn't I whistle her favourite hymn, Gospel Bells? Look here, sir, I ain't got much to learn in the way of tack with women. You see, said Sally gently, a remark like that sometimes turns people against their food. Yes, miss, said Bindle, that may be, but if you're a German, you never know what you're spreadin' on your bread. It may be your uncle or it may be somebody else's uncle, and that's worse still. "'Mr. Bindle!' cried Sally. "'If you say another word about anything so horrible, I shall—I shall—well, I shall, well, I shall drive on and leave you alone in the field.' Oh, "'I'm sorry, miss,' said Bindle, with great seriousness. "'I didn't know that you—that you—' "'That I was like Mrs. Bindle,' interpolated Sally. "'Good Lord, miss, you ain't like her.' "'Well, let's change the subject,' said Sally, smiling, "'or I shan't be able to eat for a week.' "'But it didn't really spoil her supper, miss,' said Bindle earnestly. "'She finished the salmon.' For some time we continued to smoke in silence. "'Funny thing, religion,' remarked Bindle at last, apropos of nothing. It seems to get different people different wise. Now, Ertie and Mrs. B., they seem to think God is near em in that smelly little chapel of theirs. As for me, this is what makes me think of God. And Bindle waved the hand holding his cigar to embrace everything about us. But why, inquired Windover wickedly, should a cigar make you feel nearer to God? Bindle turned to Windover, and looked him straight in the eyes. "'I wasn't joking, sir,' he said simply. "'I beg your pardon, J.B.' And there was a something in Windover's tone which showed that he regarded the reproof as merited. "'If I was startin' a religion,' continued Bindle, "'I'd have people go out in the country, and kneel down in a field, and look up at the sky when the sun was shinin'. 
they'd get a better idea of God than what Ertie and Mrs. B's got. "'You're a sun-worshipper, then,' said Sally. "'Just fancy anyone who made all this.' Bindle's eyes roamed about him, wantin' to grill a poor cove like me because I ain't done all the things I ought to a done. "'But,' said Sally, "'don't you think that everybody has their own idea of God?' "'Yes, miss,' said Bindle, "'but they want to ram their own ideas down everybody else's throat. I see in the paper the other day, when we brought a zep down, that they buried all the poor chaps what was burnt together. They're uns, he added, but you can't help feeling sorry for what they had to suffer. They had a clergyman and a Catholic priest to read the burial service over them. The paper said the priest was there in case some of the dead uns was Catholics. It looks as if a chap hadn't got a chance of going to heaven unless he sort of got a ticket from the parson of his own church. Someone has described Anatole France as a pagan preoccupied with Christ. The same description applies to Joseph Bindle. He cannot keep long off the subject of religion, and in all his comments there seems to be the same instinctive groping for light. Erty reminds me of a cove I used to know, what never seemed to get thirsty except when he saw a pub. Well, Erty never seems to feel religious except when he sees a chapel. Then it sort of comes over him. If he really feels he wants to pray, why can't he kneel down beside his own taters? If there's a God, he's just as much in a greengrocer's shop as in a dirty little tin chapel. That's what I says. Bindle looked round as if defying contradiction. "'I think you are right,' said Sally. "'But you must not forget that Mr. Harty does not share your views, any more than you share his. If religion helps people to do good, it doesn't much matter when they get it or where they get it from.' "'Yes, miss, but does it help? You remember when the Lusitania went down? Well, there was a pretty good scrap round Fulham way.' One night they went for a poor chap what had got a German name, and they wrecked his shop. they just got hold of him when a big chap comes up what's done time more'n once and tells him to chuck it. "'But he's an on!' yells the crowd. "'Yes, but they're only one of him, and there's hundreds of you,' says Bill. And as they wouldn't chuck it, Bill let fly, and there was a pretty old mess.' There was a silence for a full minute, broken at last by Bindle. "'Don't you think God likes a man to do what Bill did, miss?' inquired Bindle ingenuously. "'I am sure he did,' said Sally. "'And what did you do?' "'Oh, I got a black eye, and Mrs. B. said she was more sure than ever that L. was waiting for me.' "'What does me about religion?' continued Bindle after a pause is what people'll swallow. There's Mrs. B. now. She can't take a pill without a bucket of water and about a dozen tries. Looks like an inn having a drink, she does. Yet tell her it's religion, and she'd swallow anything, and make believe she likes it. If that whale hadn't been religious, he'd never a got Jonah down. Bindle paused and for a few moments watched a trail of white smoke from a distant train. There was a cove somewhere in the Bible called Pharaoh. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
murmured Windover. "'That's him, sir,' cried Bindle. "'Well, look how they say God treated him.' "'I'm afraid I've forgotten,' I said with guile. "'Well,' began Bindle, settling himself down for a story, "'he took to collectin' Jews, sort of got old of all there was in the market, same as them Americans with food. One day the Jews got a-talkin' to each other about home, though I never see a Jew yet what wanted to get home when he could stay in someone else's backyard." Bindle paused to suck vigorously at his cigar, which showed signs of going out. Pharaoh said there wasn't nothin' doin', and they couldn't go. Though how anyone can want to keep a Jew what is willin' to go home does me. Then the Jews prayed to God, and he made Pharaoh say he'd let him go. Then he hardened Pharaoh's art and started giving Pharaoh beans. "'Was it not boils?' murmured Windover, examining the tip of his cigarette with great intentness. "'Maybe, sir. Well, first God made Pharaoh agree to let the Jews catch the next boss. Then he strafed him, hardened the poor old chap's art till he didn't know where he was. What I say is it wasn't sportin'. "'I'm afraid you cannot judge Bible history by Queensbury rules,' said Windover. "'It's like letting a bird go, and then pulling it back by a bit of string tied to its leg. Poor old Pharaoh couldn't help hisself with God a-hardening of his art. That's what I don't like.' "'Your theology is a trifle unconventional, I fear,' said Windover. "'Where did you learn about Pharaoh?' You can't live with Mrs. B, sir, without picking up a lot about Evan and arps and things," was the reply. "'Go on, Mr. Bindle,' said Sally. "'Well, miss,' proceeded Bindle, "'there's something about visiting sins on children and grandchildren. I had that out with Artie one night. Artie don't like talking religion with me. He says I ain't got no faith.' "'What happened?' Sally inquired. Well, I asked Ertie why God should punish a man for what his father did. Because, says Ertie, he had an hard art, and wouldn't believe in God. What did you say, Ertie? I says. If the police was to pinch you cause your father flitted without avin paid his rent? Of course, Ertie says nothing to that, but mutters that we can't understand the ways of God. Them ain't the ways of God. It's the things these chaps say about him. When you're strong, you don't go knockin' over things what can't it back. I knew a bruiser once, and he was as gentle as a lamb. I seen a chap want him to fight, and he wouldn't, cause he was afraid of hurtin'. Bindle paused to relight his cigar. Then, when it was once more in full blast, he continued. Then they tells you to love your neighbours as yourself. I'd like em to look out of our window when Sandy Iggins and his missus is scrappin' in their back yard. No, he remarked meditatively, a religion like that's wasted on Fulham. That is just Bindle, bringing down the divine to the level of men's eyes, and raising the earthly to the mountain-tops. It was nearly one o'clock on Sunday morning, when the car slid from the Fulham Road into the street that leads to Fenton Street. When we pulled up, Bindle slipped out of Carruthers' overcoat and got down. As he said good-night to Sally, we heard him whisper, 
I never had a day like this before, miss. We continued on our way in silence. When Sally dropped me into a passing taxi, Windover remarked, I hope I shall be dead when democracy discovers all it has been denied. I knew he was referring to Bindle's remark to Sally. End of chapter 17 End of The Night Club by Herbert Jenkins Recording by Lee Smalley